0: So if you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you, our scripture reading today is found on page 1030, and we are, we are returning today to our study, our worship time guided through the book of Luke. And uh, so we are in Luke chapter 9, we're actually about halfway through Luke chapter 9, and um, and so I invite you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word in Luke Luke 9 beginning in verse 18 Now it happened that as he was praying alone the disciples were with him and he asked them who do the crowds say that I am and they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> so sometimes uh, mistaken identities can be amusing. I, uh, I remember recently as, as England was celebrating the, uh, what was it, the platinum anniversary of uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, 70 yeah, seventy years she's been reigning. Seventy years, uh, but one of her uh, one of her retired uh, royal uh, kind of guards officers, protection officers, recounted a, uh, a story of when he was with her and they were just walking uh, in an area like in a uh, field and they ran into two American tourists and it was obvious from the beginning that they did not recognize Queen Elizabeth. <clears throat> and so they would, they struck up a conversation, and he recalls how she was just very kind and speaking with them and asked them what they were doing, what their plans were for the, the travel. And, uh, and one, of the, uh, one of the Americans asked her where she lived, <laughs> and she said that she lived in London but that she also had a holiday home just on the other side of the hills there. And uh, as they talked, they asked again and asked how, how long she'd been coming and spending holidays in those hills. And she said, oh, well, since I was a little girl, so for about really for nearly 80 years. And they were astonished, and they said, 80 years? Well, then surely you've probably met the queen And she replied that, no, in fact, she had not ever met the queen, but that her friend had met her several times. And so then they were totally enamored with her friend there and asked him, what was she like? And he said, well, she can be a bit cantankerous, (laughs) but she does have a good sense of humor. And so at one point, they just kept talking and and she didn't press. And then at one point, one of the Americans puts his arm around the guard and hands his phone to the queen and asks if she would take their picture because they've met someone who was so close to the queen of England. And she did. And then he, the, her guard and friend, uh, made them take pictures with her also. And then they all parted and left. And And the queen said to the guard how much she wished she could be a fly on the wall. <laughs> and ho- But also hoped that somewhere in America they would have friends <laughs> that would recognize who they had their picture taken with. <laughs> so what exactly happens when you... When you have so misidentified royalty that you've turned them into your personal photographer. Now, not all mistaken identities are amusing and enjoyable. Some have uh, more detrimental consequences. I was going to start with the story of how I, well, let's not say I, let's go with Paul, how a person I know once tailgated a unmarked state trooper for several miles down a highway before finally that state trooper tapped his brakes, eliciting from this friend of mine gestures and shaking of heads until the guy in the car in front of me, him, him put on this goofy-looking Smokey the Bear hat and then went... And I pulled over behind him. And sometimes mistaken identities are costly. Jesus asks his disciples a question that you and I have to answer. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without answering the question. Who do you say that I am? And how you answer that question will drive your expectations, what you expect from Jesus. Uh, It will drive your expectations of what's expected of you, how you answer that question. Who do you say I am? A few years ago, we worked through the book of Mark, And one of the tools that we used was uh, Rico Tice, who helped start Christianity Explored. And Rico Tice um, explained that in the book of Mark, you can take every paragraph of Mark and and like highlight it with one of three colors. And you assign those colors to one of three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it look like to follow him? everything in the book of Mark, he says, has to do with identity. Who is Jesus? Mission. Why did he come? Calling. What does it look like to follow him? And as I have read through other Gospels, I wonder if he's accurate, but also if it's not true that all of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels could be uh, broken down in those three questions. But Whether all of Luke can be broken down that way, at least these three paragraphs very specifically answer those three questions. The first paragraph answers the question, Who is Jesus? The second paragraph answers the question, Why did he come? And the third answers the question, What does it look like to follow him? And so, first, we have this question, Who is Jesus? Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and we learn from uh, later in the, other, in the third paragraph that it's more than just his disciples because then it says that he turned to all of them, not just his disciples. So there's more. There's a crowd there. But Jesus turns to his disciples, his followers, his, his specific closest followers, and he says, who do people say that I am? This is more than Jesus feeling a little insecure. This isn't Jesus wanting to hear some kudos from the crowds. This, is, uh, this isn't him just uh, feeling bad about himself and wanting to know what nice things people are saying. But this is part of understanding who is Jesus. Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answer, you know, uh, John the Baptist. Some think you're John the Baptist, which uh, you know, so I guess maybe they think the the rumors of his beheading were slightly exaggerated or something. Uh, some say that your Elijah returned from the dead, and that 's not a bad thought because the very end of so Malachi in our English Bibles is the last book of our Old Testament. It's not necessarily the last book in the Hebrew. The last book in the Hebrew Old Testament is 2 Chronicles. But Malachi is the last uh, of the prophet's writings. And at the end of Malachi, in chapter 3, uh, Malachi says that that a messenger will come to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, and then in chapter 4, the Malachi ends not with a prophecy about the Messiah, but with a prophecy specifically about Elijah, that Elijah will come or one will come in the spirit of Elijah and will prepare the way, will we'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Uh, and, and so uh, many start wondering, well, maybe this guy is that Elijah character. The problem is that uh, in Luke 1, an angel told Zechariah that his son John the Baptist would be the Elijah character, and then Zechariah sings about it in Luke chapter one that his son would be the one who is preparing the way for uh, the coming of the Lord, and then Jesus himself in Luke seven says that John the Baptist was the uh, the fulfillment of those prophecies, and then other people, you know, other people say, well, maybe he's the Uh, Just some other prophet, some prophet uh, raised from the dead or prophet from of old. And and again, this isn't a bad uh, uh, thought. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells uh, the people of Israel, he says, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen." And uh, that is a that is a prophecy about the coming of, of Jesus, that he would be uh, that prophet. But to say that Jesus is a prophet, um, it's it's true, but it's inaccurate. Uh, it would be like going to uh, the neighborhood barbecue or a work uh, a work picnic, and introducing your wife as your good friend. You know, you, your boss is coming there, he's never met, and you're like, so all the people you work with, and you say, I want you to meet my good friend, Amy. Now, is it, is it false? Is that untrue that Amy's my good friend? Of course not, that's true, but it's not accurate. It's not even a little accurate. And if you don't believe me, try it. <laughs> at the next gathering that you are introducing your wife for the first time, just introduce her as your good friend and leave it at that and see how she responds. Does she feel, does she feel loved and cherished? No, she, she will feel a little slighted at the least. And rightly so, because she may be your good friend, or maybe she was your good friend before this instance, (laughs) but that doesn't even come close to describing who she is. It's not enough to say she's your good friend. I wonder if they chuckled over these things. You know, I mean, at least two of the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, All of them knew that Jesus and John were, Were two different people when they said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. And at that point, you're like, do they even know how reincarnation works? Like you can't be a person who was the same that doesn't what? And so did they chuckle about these things? Did they did they admit, oh, these? uh, Well, this might be what we were thinking, actually. Uh, Did uh, I think it's amusing that they only told him the nice things people were saying about him. Who do people say I am? Uh, Elijah. People say you're Elijah. They don't say you're crazy. No, they do not. They don't say you are an illegitimate child of a loose woman. They ne- no one says that. But then, then he gets to the point. The real question. You know I'm not John you know I'm not Elijah. So who do you say I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, because the who do you is a plural question. Who do y'all say that I am? And Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ of God. You are God's Messiah. See, Christ is is the Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the same thing as uh, the English phrase, the anointed one. Christ and Messiah and anointed one. Jesus, or Peter says, you are God's anointed one. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Priests in the Old Testament were anointed, uh, they would be anointed for the work that they were called to. Uh, kings were anointed. They would be anointed by, the, by a prophet or by a judge. Uh, we saw that in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. Saul was anointed. David was anointed. Prophets were anointed, perhaps not physically by someone on earth, giving them their calling, but they were anointed by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto the prophets, that the Spirit of God would be poured out onto the prophets so that they would speak for God. Jesus, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ, he is the greater priest. He's the greater king. He's the greater Prophet. This is why, while prophet may be accurate, it's not nearly enough to say about Jesus. Why, Why does that matter? Well, because identity bleeds into mission, if you'll pardon the use of the word. I mean, let's ask this question. Do you want your wife to do the things for you that a good friend does for you? Or do you want your wife to do the things for you that only a wife can do for you? Identity matters because it it speaks into mission. If we don't understand who Jesus is, we'll never understand why he came and why did he come. It's a little disguised in English, but literally it says, uh, and he rebuked. And commanded them. So, in English, we we, the the translators struggle with the strong language. This Greek word, all throughout the Book of Luke, is only ever used or translated as rebuke. He rebukes the demons. He rebukes bad faith or bad uh, understanding. And it says here that Jesus rebuked and commanded them. It's a little disconcerting. You get the answer right and you get scolded anyway. Like, what the heck? What, we got it right. Well, it's because uh, identity isn't enough. You do have to understand the mission of Jesus. You have to understand why Jesus came or else you'll misunderstand what it means that he's the Messiah if the crowds latched on to this idea of the anointed one, the Messiah, without understanding that this Messiah came to die, their understanding of the Messiah would be the assumption that he had come to kill, that he he had come indeed to sacrifice, but not himself, but perhaps the Romans. They were looking for a leader. They were looking for a Messiah, someone who would come and restore uh, their national freedom. Someone who would come and restore the power that they once had as that great nation of Israel. They were looking for a savior, one who would come and, and make Israel great again. And many of those who were looking for that were the most conservative of Israel. The ones who looked at Israel and said, this is what's wrong with our country. We have abandoned God's word. We have abandoned obedience. We have walked away from God and that's why we are in the mess we're in. And we have got to get back to the basics of obedience and bring God's restoration back to this great land of ours. They wanted a Messiah who would restore their greatness. Not necessarily a Messiah who would shine a light on their weakness. And these aren't, it's it's not that they invented these things. It's just that they misunderstood the promises or at least the order of the promises. They they loved the passages in I, Isaiah that spoke of the the glory that the Messiah would bring and the and the dignity and the the restoration that would come. But the whole idea that the Messiah might also be this guy that's talked about in the middle called the servant leader. The one who was so meek, he wouldn't eat like his 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 speaking wouldn't even snuff out a smoldering candle. But Jesus rebukes them and says, don't tell anyone because they're not ready to hear this because they don't understand that the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. The Son of Man must suffer many and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. These things must happen. This has to happen for the Messiah to save you. These things must happen first. That the Messiah will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Who are these? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These aren't titles of Roman officials. These are titles of Israel's religious leaders. The Messiah must be rejected by the church. By the leaders of the church. So let me just... This is just a freebie, just in case. Have you ever, have you ever been hurt by the church? Is it not incredible that even in that, your Savior says, me too. I was rejected by the very ones who should have received me. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Rejected by the very ones who thought that they were serving God in their rejection of him, thought they were doing God's work by rejecting him. Do you see how important Jesus' identity is? If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you will actually reject him thinking you're serving God. You reject why he came thinking that you're following God's will. You'll either understand that he is God's Christ, he is God's anointed one, or you will reject and despise him. Only if Jesus is God's Christ, who came to rejected, be rejected, to suffer, to die, to be raised for you, will you be able to hear His next words. What is His calling? What does it look like to follow this one? In verses twenty-three to twenty-seven, he's, He says there's three things: deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Me. Deny yourself. Because there's only two choices. You will either deny yourself or you will deny Jesus. Because all of our sin boils down to one thing. I want to sit on the throne of my life. All of my sin comes back to that. I want to be in charge. I want to decide for myself. I want to make the decisions. I want to say what's right. I want to say what's wrong. And so the question is, will I deny myself or will I deny Christ? Every object of worship requires the eventual denial of every other object of worship. All gods are exclusive gods. You must deny yourself. He says you must take up your cross every day. And this is just just a reminder of, like, this is before they even understand that Jesus is going to die on a cross. So here is Jesus introducing the idea of taking up your cross before he himself has been crucified. And so consider the imagery that he's using. This is how one author explains it. In the first century, the cross was not a mere symbol or figure of speech, but a repugnant instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's Rome's terror apparatus, designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions in the most painful, protracted, and public manner possible as a warning against rebellion. There are no known survivors of Roman crucifixions. The cross was thus a symbol of absoluteness and totality. And Jesus is using this language of saying, your submission to me is that absolute. It is that total. It is a taking up of your cross every day. Dying to self, crucifying self is the way into the kingdom. But it's not just the way into the kingdom, is it? He says, take up your cross daily. This isn't a entry point. This is a lifestyle. This is a daily commitment to die. A daily commitment to crucify something in myself. Dying daily... Crucifying daily, it moves it from this idea even of you have to be prepared that one day you may be called on to pay the ultimate sacrifice. No, he's saying this happens daily. You ought, you need to be prepared that you need to do this daily. Die to yourself, as one writer puts it: "Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you." It is a daily sacrifice. See, all love involves sacrifice. All love must include dying. If you love yourself, you will sacrifice others for your agenda. If you love yourself, you will make sacrifices, and those sacrifices will be other people. In your lives, you will sacrifice them, their needs, their uh, their desires. You'll just sacrifice them because they don't measure up to your wants, your desires. We know probably all of us, too many people. I know too many men who have decided I'm going to sacrifice for love. And they will sacrifice their wife and their children for love and it's not love of another woman it is love of self what I want what I claim to need what I desire and I will sacrifice others to meet that all love involves sacrifice if you love yourself you will sacrifice others if you love God you will sacrifice yourself you will say, I would die to my desires because I love God. What are we to crucify daily? I, I, I thought of at least three things. Maybe they're all the same, though. I mean, the first and most obvious is sin. I mean, that's that's not a hard one. The first thing we should be crucifying daily is sin. That's in Romans 6, That that we ought to be considering ourselves dead to sin and being about going about the process of mortifying sin in our bodies. We ought to be killing sin regularly, daily, daily, saying no to those temptations, daily seeking help from the word and from others so that we can be killing sin. But it's not just sin, is it? It's also our desires, which maybe we kind of put desires with sin because it's easy to say, well, we should be killing our sinful desires. But do you know that like James never uses that qualifier when he talks about our desires, when he says, what causes what causes quarrels and fights among you? And every person sitting there, it's like elbowing the person next to them thinking her. She causes quarrels and fights. Or him, he causes quarrels and fights. That's not what James says. James says, isn't it this? Your passions are at war within you. Your desires are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. we ought to be daily seeking to crucify our desires we ought to be asking are these desires christ's desires and if not i should be crucifying these desires and then at the same level i'd say because desires isn't qualified as just your bad desires i would say what are our dreams I think we should be in a daily habit of crucifying our dreams, our hopes. We, we can often take very good things that are either in our lives now or that we wish were in our lives or that used to be in our lives, and these very good things become the controlling, dominating things in our life. And they should have been good gifts, and they should have been things to rejoice in, or to long for in a holy way, but they've become these dominating, life-sucking dreams. So without trying to ruin the movie, I, I just, on, on an airplane, I just watched doc, The New Doctor Strange. Listen, so if you haven't seen it, I'll try to keep this as vague as possible. But there is a person in that movie that essentially shows us what happens when a good desire becomes an idol and you see the willingness to murder across multiverses in order to see that desire fulfilled that dream and it's a good dream it's a dream that many of us would say that's 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 my dream That's what I want. But what happens when the dream we want becomes so dominating that I will sacrifice my walk with Jesus? I will sacrifice my relationship with God because this dream is too important. And when Jesus calls us to crucify our dreams, don't you understand that there's like, there's two very positive possibilities that come out of that. You crucify your dream. And one thing that might come of that is that Jesus comes in and says, I have a different dream for you. Now that that is out of the way, let's let's focus on my dream for you. But the other is that Jesus is the God of, of resurrection. And so sometimes he says, now that we have killed that dream, let's, let's raise that up in newness of life. Let's, let's see if we can't now do something with that dream, but in a way that says, well, God is my ultimate dream. It's so, so easy for us to just hold on so tightly to those dreams, those desires. And Jesus says, you need to be crucifying those daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And he gives sort of three kind of supporting clauses at the end. He says these three fours, not three fours, but three, anyway, three, whatever that, Figure of speech is the preposition. No, I don't know. Anyway, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And again, silly movie, but uh, it's totally played out in this movie that this person who was seeking to just save it all lost it all. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And it's not just lose your life willy-nilly, but lose your life for my sake. Submit your life to Christ. For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and still lose or forfeit his soul? What are you willing to forfeit? What are you willing to lose? Again, every love involves loss. Every love involves denial. Either I will love myself and my dreams and my desires and I will deny others and I will lose other things and relationships will crumble and my relationship with God will fail. Or I will love God and I will lose, I will be willing to lose everything to gain Christ. Whoever is ashamed of me, and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Aren't there just ways that we read God's word and we're like, oh, well, I'm not going to talk about that. I don't, I don't want to. That's kind of, that's so old fashioned. That's so, oh, oh, here's God's word again. It's just, we have to we have to bring this we have to update the language we have to we have to take into account the culture and and where we are in in these things and uh i was just reading that like uh, i guess franklin Graham was interviewed uh by the the english dude i don't know uh what's his name pierce Pier- not pierce bronson that's remington steel pierce morgan that was it so not remington Steele, but the other guy uh and he said to him, like don't, you do, like, don't you feel like it's time for the church to update its language on, you know, I mean, surely by now the church is ready to update its language on things like love and, and acceptance and uh, even like things as far as sexuality. And, and Franklin said, well, I mean, it's not the church's responsibility. I mean, we either follow what God says or what's the point. And why call ourselves a church of God if we're not even going to follow what God says? Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? How amazing that the anointed one, God's anointed one, came specifically to suffer be rejected and die for the very sin that earns for us that suffering, rejection, and death. That he would do that and be raised for us. A God who would love us that much has every right to call us to follow him in that kind of sacrificial love. That's, I mean, that's the love that we celebrate at the table. That's what we come together for, to remember what Christ has done for our salvation. We proclaim the Lord's death as we eat and as we drink, that, that Christ was crucified for our sins, that he was raised for our newness of life, that, that, Christ, that sin is so serious and God is so holy that nothing less than the death of the Son of God would suffice for our deliverance. And at the same time that God is so merciful and so compassionate that he willingly, intentionally chose to make that sacrifice for us. These two truths come together at the Lord's Supper as we eat and remember and believe that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the complete remission of all our sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful to you for your goodness to us and pray that you would write these truths on our hearts, that you would move us to love you and each other, that you would... uh, Remind us of who Jesus is and that who he is and why he came would move us and fill us so that we might crucify our sin, our our desires, our dreams, looking to Jesus to fulfill all that you have promised to us. In Jesus' name, amen.